Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. Jerry Walquist would never wish on anyone what happened to her on December 30th, 2013. But she also knows she wouldn't be who she is today if not for that tragic moment. In the midst of overwhelming despair, Christ was there. Now here's your host, Mark Weinstein. Thank you, Sarah, and welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. I'm Mark Weinstein, and I want to remind you to to be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss a single episode, like today's story that will address victory in the midst of tragedy. Today's program may be the most impactful story we've ever aired on the Cedarville Stories podcast. The story you're about to hear from my guest, Jerry Walquist, is filled with tragedy and victory in a way that is unimaginable through our human understanding, but expected in Christ. Jerry's story is a great reminder that at the end of the day, God is in control, we can trust him, and he is where our hope lies. By way of introduction, Jerry Walquist is a personal friend and is perhaps one of the newest employees at Cedarville University as she started her employment as an administrative assistant in Cedarville's Human Resources Department just 32 days ago. She is originally from Niles, Michigan, just 30 minutes from my hometown, and has been a teacher at Legacy Christian School in Xenia before joining the Cedarville community. Jerry is the mom to Rachel, who is studying nursing at Cedarville, and Thomas, who will enroll next year at Cedarville. And at the heart of today's podcast, Jerry is a widow, which we will talk in great length about. Jerry, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me today. So, uh, Jerry, your story is one that no person ever wants to experience. Uh, That being a widow, uh, you've gone through some tremendous pain in your life dating back to December 30th of 2013. I'd like to have our listeners hear a little bit more about your spiritual journey and when you came to faith in Jesus. Certainly. My faith in Jesus is currently at a great place. I have been a work in progress uh, most of my life, even having been raised in church and at a Christian school. You know, I had head knowledge for a long time, and um, I came to um, realize my need is Jesus as my Savior when I was about 30 years old. And, uh, and since then, it's the Holy Spirit working in my life, continually working on me and growing me since then. And probably in the last five years, Mark, I would say that my faith has grown stronger than I could ever have imagined it has grown. Um, the Lord has drawn me to him in such a way that um, it's almost, I feel like my eyes have been open and even my ears just unplugged in, um, in his love and his faithfulness and, in my continual need for him and my need to be trusting in him and everything. Um, so I've been a work in progress. I'll continue to be a work in progress and, um, but I love the Lord. Yeah, I, I see that Jerry. And, and just, uh, just to make you feel good, we're all a work in progress mm-hmm. and whether you've known uh, the Lord for, Three months or 30 years, we're still a work in progress until he calls us home. 
So continue the journey. And it's fun to watch you in your service to the Lord at, at Patterson Park. So please know that it's noticed. Let's fast forward just a little bit for today's uh, conversation. It's obvious to me, and I just mentioned this, that your faith has played a key role in your, your life. How have you been able to lead your children in the ways of the Lord? Well, I have started, I mean, they are at Legacy Christian Academy. That's a, you know, that was a help alongside with me and raising my children in the Lord. They, you know, we are close in many ways, and I am very open and honest with my life with my kids. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, hoping that they will learn from mistakes that I've made and that they will see how my faith has grown um, in the Lord and how I've changed. And, you know, I think just being as close as we are and being open and the ways we've had to be open, um, they see my faith and they have just grown in knowing that. And, you know, I've had to grow a lot and trust in the Lord and They've just been right there alongside me. We've had several conversations, and you know, you've talked for a few years at least that I know of of possibly coming to work at Cedarville. But what I what what's impressed me about that, and it just speaks to your leadership and your care for your kids, which I think reflects your relationship with the Lord, is that you you weren't will, willing or ready to take a job at Cedarville until your children were on board. And you wanted, and Thomas, your son, wanted you to still be home at, at night or days. So you did that, and that's really commendable. That's right, yes. Yeah, I I have loved Cedarville. I've had a heart towards working and being at Cedarville University, the community, for like you said, for years. And I did apply a few about three years ago, and both yeah. my kids at that time were still in high school. And they yeah. loved the idea, but then when they realized I would you know, be working, I could be working 12 months a year rather than school time. Um, They started digging their heels in and they wanted me to still be at home in the summer on their breaks. You know, basically I've always felt like I'm a stay at home mom, but I just work when they're at school because I've been able to work in the school system with them. So, but now my son is getting ready to graduate and I feel it's now my time and that I can now try to get in Cedarville and I'm here and love it. And um, it's just a good time. We're glad you're here with us. So, Jerry, for the rest of the, uh, the conversation, we're going to talk about the events of uh, December 30th, 2013. Uh, your life took a sudden turn on that day, both personally and spiritually. Um, mm-hmm. You were on vacation in Puerto Rico with your husband, Brett, Rachel, and Thomas. And if I remember the story correctly, you were about a day away from returning to back to Ohio when everything changed, and that includes uh, your your children so drastically. Let's let's walk through it briefly. So, you were on a two week uh, vacation in in Puerto Rico before or prior to December thirtieth. What are your memories of that vacation? Oh, we have good re- memories, and we do. And the kids and I will talk about that still. Um, some of the good things we'd go there because the weather is warm, you know, this water is warm. Um, we would go there with family and we were used to every Christmas time, either early when the kids are younger, going to Michigan. Um, we were always with right. family over Christmas break. Um, so the last like few years before this time, we started going to somewhere where it's warmer. The family, Brett's family would start going to Florida and we would have trips in Florida. We wanted to go somewhere warmer. We went to Puerto Rico and we started going there for a few years. Um, and so we'd spend time with, okay. we spent time with the family there. His family was there also. His sister-in-law or his sister was there and her family and his dad was there and his fiance. And they left 
about a week prior to December 30th, his dad did, but his sister was there. So we did a lot of family things, we went swimming, we went yeah. snorkeling, we had to go parasailing, um, everything you could think of. It was just a good time. So as I mentioned, December 30th was to be your last day of, or full day of vacation. And that's when an intruder who was on parole just about a month uh, broke into the place where your family was sleeping and ultimately killed uh, Brett. Can you share with us, as best you can, your remembrance from that tragic moment? Well, we had um, just gone to sleep. It was probably about one in the morning. Um, we had been laying in bed. I was reading a book. He was checking in, getting ready to do a check-in for the flight. Um, he couldn't check in until the morning, um, but he was just getting prepared. He's very prepared. And so um, about one o'clock, we turn our lights off. Good night. Um, so it was... Probably about 45 minutes later, I woke up and I don't know, I, I don't know what woke me up. I woke up and I reached over and Brett wasn't there. Um, so I walked out into the kitchen and um, immediately I saw two figures in the kitchen. Um, it was dark. There were windows behind them. So from the moonlight, I could see the two figures and I knew immediately which one's my husband in my head, just fast things just flash through your head. Um, and I thought, what is this other person doing in here? And if I jump on him, because I knew he didn't belong, if I jump on him, I knew that my husband wouldn't let anyone hurt me. So my first instinct was to run over and jump on this stranger. And I did. And we both fell down. And he and I both jumped up. And at that time, my daughter walks into the kitchen hearing the noise and I'm screaming for him to leave. And he jumps up on the stove and climbs out a window that he had broken into. I didn't know at that point, but you know, until then he, he jumped out and ran off. My husband was at that point lying on the floor. So uh, I didn't know it at that time till later, but the man had had a knife and uh, that is how he had killed my husband. I didn't know how severe it was when I went out to the kitchen because they were both still standing at that time. So Monica said my sister-in-law was like upstairs and her family and I ran up there and was screaming and got them and they came down and Rachel and I were down with Brett just talking to him. You know, I was like, I was praying aloud. I was like, God, please save him because it was very different to see my husband just laying there still and no movement except for some shallow breathing, very different. And I knew that it wasn't good. And as I was praying aloud for the Lord to save him, I realized that my kids, I, I also realized that this was bad. So I started telling him that, you know, we're going to, we're, we're going to be okay. I just started saying things. I didn't even know what to say. It was just so fast. Everything happened really fast. And then I also knew that we, at that point, at that moment also that we needed to say our goodbyes to him. So I went and got Thomas, who was still in the bedroom, and the three of us were there, and I just started telling them, you need to say goodbye to daddy. You need to say goodbye. And it was just, it was just horrible. And, you know, shortly after, police came and paramedics came, and we had made our way upstairs at that point. Um, well, at, after the police came, when I knew that Brett had died, then I went upstairs with the kids and we just went up there 
That's so hard. And I still feel for you guys uh, hearing that story. And I've heard bits and pieces of it before, so it, it doesn't hit me as new right now. But how old were Rachel and uh, Thomas at that point? Rachel was 12 and Thomas was 10. Can you tell how they dealt with, you know, saying goodbye to, to their dad? Well, when I, like I said, Rachel kind of had been out there since even the intruder was still in there. Um, and so she was out there in the kitchen the whole time from that point on. And when I pulled Thomas in, um, he, I didn't, you know, he was awake. He was just waiting in his kitchen. He heard things going on. Um, so when I brought him out, it was just devastating to see Thomas and his reaction to the scene um, and to hear his cry. The kids just did what I asked them to. And I knew that, you know, I just felt like if we don't say our goodbyes, somehow that just registered me. Got it. I got to say goodbye to him because it was, he wasn't going to make it. It's just obvious yeah. this breathing and everything yeah. else. Yeah. So it was hard. How meaningful is that goodbye today for you and the kids? For me, it's very meaningful. To be honest with you, speaking of that night with my kids even now is difficult. We don't talk about that night very often. We um, talk about things that happened before, things with Brett. Um, we don't talk about that night very often and how they do. Um, they had a very difficult time. You, you know, they saw psychologists and um, they just went to centers for grieving children afterwards, and they just had a really hard time expressing themselves, and they didn't want any of that. So it really became me. Yeah. I was the one who had yeah. to help them through this. Yeah. D does upcoming or future December 30th, are those difficult days for you and the kids? Every year, yeah. Every year, the first several years were very hard. Actually, the first every month, every 30th, of every month was yeah. a very difficult yeah. time. Um, but the years um, on that day, I typically, we go to Michigan again over Christmas time where his family is. And we'll go out to dinner that night um, with his family and yeah. uh, just in remembrance of him. Um, we'll celebrate by having, Ore not celebrate, but we'll have Oreos there because Brett loved Oreos. Um, <laughs> And so we do honor that night, honoring Brett, not what happened that night, but just the way to honor right. Brett um, together with the Walquist family. That's very meaningful. Yeah. I want to slightly move us forward a little bit. So one thing that I've noticed in the past six years that I've known you and Rachel and Thomas, is just, just how close you guys are with each other. I see you sharing events with Rachel and Thomas every and every year. Outside of the COVID year, you guys would always go to, at least one of you would go to a University of Michigan football game because that's your fam family's favorite college sports program. Mine too, I know. <laughs> and uh, of course, Brett's as well. I remember uh, what a couple years ago attending the Michigan-Indiana football game uh, in Bloomington and you and Thomas were there and we had a great time uh, before the game of having lunch with you guys. And then, of course, it was good to see the the Wolverines win, but yes, <laughs> yeah. So with that as a backdrop and, and the close, I, I say that for just because you're to show the closeness that you guys have, did the situation in Puerto Rico intensify your bond with each other? It sure has, you know, I mean, I was blessed to be able to be a stay at home mom, you know, with the kids for the first seven years of their life. And 
Um, then I said, like I said, I worked in schools after then. So I was always on their schedule, but I'll tell you what, our closeness just grew more after Brett died. Um, they depended on me and I honestly, Mark, depended on them. I needed them. I needed, you know, they were a big reason I was able to get through so many difficult months um, and years because I had them. Yeah, they still needed me. Um, but our love is, we're fierce. We are very yeah. strongly connected. Um, like I said, you know, my son wanted me to still be home with him. He wanted, you know, not that, not that it's a fear anymore at this age, um, but out of fear, but it's just out of love. We just right. love our time together and we play cards. We play games still. They still want to be with me and hang out with me. So, yeah, it's that's special. And that's, that's something that more families, it would serve us well to take heed of things like that because life is short, life is precious, mm -hmm. and we need to love and care and be with the people who are part of our families mm -hmm. and our lives. So uh, that's a great model uh, that you are demonstrating. But even as much as you work to keep your family together, Jerry, uh, I'm sure you continue to deal with tough days. Um, how have you seen God working in your life since Brett's passing? I mean, I was brought to my knees, Mark. I was brought to my knees. I mean, I could have gone in many different ways after Brett died. And, you know, and I didn't make all the right choices. Um, but ultimately, my faith was strong enough that I needed him. I cried out to him. You know, I journaled um, for months after Brett died. I'm not a journaler. And I looked back at those. And, and I called on the name of the Lord. I needed him. He brought up verses to me he um just drew me to him and in the first several weeks afterwards i just was so broken my world turned so upside down that i couldn't even pray um I, people would ask you know what can i do and i'd say please just pray my groanings just you know the bible says it's just so deep i didn't even have the words to pray and so i counted on people's prayers and um but the lord brought people into my life he helped me um in the t in times when i just didn't know how it's gonna manage and what i was gonna do and he was there for me he's been there for me as i continue to move on one bit of information that i know from talking with you is that and this is really difficult is that brett was not a professing believer mm -hmm. at his at his death how have you been able to reconcile uh, his passing in light of eternity? Well, the whole tragedy just alone was tragic. But Brett not having been a professing believer when he died was just almost more than I could take for quite a while. And that's all I could think about yeah. is where is he, you know, and just so, you know, just so even thinking, why was it him and not me? You know, you know, why, why did that happen? It was a lot of whys, and why didn't he come to the Lord then, before then? But, you know, Mark, about six weeks after his death, Thomas's fifth grade teacher had asked if we could come in for a meeting. And I was just so sad. I couldn't get Brett off my, you know, I couldn't get his, not just his death, but his unbelief off my mind, you know, and where he might be. And I was, so she wanted to see all three of us. And I was 
asking the Lord on the way. And I was like, I was basically telling the Lord, I was like, I don't want to go to this meeting. Lord, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And I don't want to hear anything come out of her mouth other than something that would give me some peace about Brett. And she told me that because Brett, or I'm sorry, Thomas, my son Thomas, he would ask a prayer for Brett at school for his salvation. And he had done that for, I think, off and on for a couple of years. So she knew, you know, when it happened, this, you know, what the ramifications, what we were probably going through. And she called us in and she said, you know, the Lord hears the prayers of children. You know, he called the little children to him, that he hears the prayers of the children. She said that she reminded me of the thief on the cross, how the Lord had said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. She encouraged me in that our God is so strong and powerful and doesn't want that anyone should perish, that he could have talked to Brett in those last moments of his breathing and come to him and, you know, given him a choice, given him a chance. And that's where my hope lies. My hope lies in Second uh, Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And I know the Lord's love for me, um, that he loves all of us. And that I don't know where Brett is. I'm not trying to say I know where Brett is now, but I believe that the Lord has the ability to talk to people and that maybe he gave Brett a chance. And my time when I was sitting there praying over him at that moment when he was dying, Lord, please save him, that he didn't answer that in a physical way. He didn't get to come home with us. But my prayers that he gave Brett a chance and maybe Brett took the opportunity and um, accepted the Lord. And, you know, maybe I'll get to see him someday. You meant that prayer, not just physically, but spiritually for Brett I as well. I did. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably at that moment, I was asking physically. Um, right. But I believe that the Lord could have used it and turned around. And it's a spiritual, he answered it spiritually. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, I want to transition to the time of the trial, because there's so much in the trial and the sentencing that you and I talked about of the person who was charged and then later convicted of Brett's murder. It had to be tough to be in the same courtroom as this person, but you've told me that you felt God's outreaching power. Can you explain what you meant by that? Mm -hmm. Well, there are in different ways. Um, just waiting at the trial, um, I was taken to a separate room. So that I was in the prosecutor's office waiting, and he had on there a Bible verse. It was in Spanish. I didn't understand it, um, but I looked it up, you know, because I could see what, where it came from the yeah. Bible. Um, I was encouraged, you know, just that little piece. I felt like the Lord was just giving me a peace and a calm right there, that he was there with me. It was a reminder that he was there with me. I had an interpreter during the trial. Um, so my prayer was that I would be able to speak correctly what I needed and understanding through the interpreter and trying to um, go through that whole process of listening to it in Spanish and interpreting and then they're interpreting it back. And I, you know, I didn't want to mess up and the Lord helped me through that. Right, right, right. The probably the biggest thing that he helped me through is that it was Mother's Day weekend also of that year when we were at trial. 
so the trial didn't, the trial was continuing from Friday to Monday. So we were there over Mother's Day. I was there over Mother's Day weekend. My kids were not there. Um, I just wanted to go home with the kids. So the, all that weekend, I was prayerfully asking that it ends soon. I could go home soon. But even more than that, I knew that there could possibly be a sentencing later on and that it could be two or three weeks later after the trial. And I did not want to go back. You know, um, I had been to the pre-trial in early February. I was there again for the trial then. And if I had to come back for a third time um, to hear the sentencing, I did not want to. My kids had a hard time with me leaving. They didn't want me gone. And I didn't want to be gone, but I knew I would go because that was the only thing I could do for Brett was to be there and um, to participate in that. So I knew I would go, but my prayer was for somehow, some way that... It would just all be over. And um, while I was there that time. So Monday rolled around and uh, the judge had decided that he had heard enough testimony. He didn't need to hear anymore um, because earlier the defendant had said he would he requested a trial by judge rather than jury. So there was not a jury. So the judge said he was finished. He didn't need any more people to come up. Okay. Um, so I knew that I was going to get to go home soon. I knew the trial was going to be over. So that was uh, how the Lord helped me answer a prayer of that. But also how the sentencing, I didn't want to come back in a few weeks. The judge asked him if he could, if he wanted him to do the sentencing at that moment or as his rights, he could wait for a few weeks to have a sentencing then. And then the defendant said he would, go ahead and it was okay to do the sentencing at okay. that moment. And at that moment when that happened, it just felt like it was against all odds. That would happen. Only the Lord could have made that happen. I just cried. I cried because I knew that sentencing was going to happen right then. I was going to get to go home. I didn't have to come back to Puerto Rico and I could just be with my kids. And um, so that was huge. The Lord just showed himself in just yeah. a huge way to me and just, different ways how he handled the trial at that time. You also told me uh, in a previous conversation that um, it was important for you to have the opportunity to speak to the defendant, mm -hmm. which that happened. Uh, how helpful was that for you in the grieving and healing process? Mm -hmm. That was huge. I didn't know it then, but it was because all during the trial, I was just really angry. I, you know, yeah. I'd look over at him and I could have just jumped over you know, the railing they have there and just start beating on him, you know, and, <laughs> you know, in his defense, he wasn't arrogant. He'd come down, he'd come in every day with his head down. And, but I was still angry. So when they had given me the okay to say something to him that Monday, um, when the judges finished listening to testimony, that was a shock also, because at first I was told they don't allow that. They don't do that. I wouldn't have that opportunity. But the judge changed his mind, again, a God thing, and allowed me to come up. So I was, able, I was able to go forward and talk to the defendant. And while I was talking to him and just telling him how what he did affected me and the kids, I felt a need. I just wanted him to look at me because I was probably staring, boring holes in him the whole time during the trial. And he wouldn't turn around and look at me. I just wanted to see the hurt. And I wanted him to see Brett in my eyes. I wanted him to see the hurt of my children in my eyes and just to look at me. Yeah. And so I asked him to look at me 
And it was in Spanish. She didn't know English, so it was being interpreted. And the defense attorney was saying, oh, he has rights. He doesn't have to look at her. But he understood then, you know, that that's what I was asking. Yeah. And on his own, he just looked, lifted up his head and looked in my eyes. And for three to five seconds, he just looked into his brown eyes and just looked. They were sad. I looked at him. He looked at me. And... Then he put his head back down. In those three to five seconds that he did that, felt like three to five minutes, three, three to five hours. They felt really long. But that affected me in a way that when I got home, um, all I could see were his brown eyes. All I could see was him. Instead of me and what he had done to me, I was seeing him. And I started, my forgiveness started happening at that point. That's when it just began. There was, a lot that happened in the next few years, I had to keep forgiving him because of the hard things. I just, you know, I'd get angry at him again and have to forgive him again many times over. Um, and it wasn't a complete forgiveness, but it started, I started looking more at me in, in the sense that he's in need of a savior, yeah. just like I am. He received his earthly sentence, but we all have a judgment that we'll face someday yeah. we're all in the same boat yeah. we all need a savior and he's no different than i am and that's how the lord started helping me and healing me and getting the forgiveness for him so it's been over seven years since brett was taken from you um how are you and rachel and thomas doing today um we're doing really well um you know they're typical kids um young adults i should say and they're strong, Mark. They're survivors. They are, you know, they're strong in their faith. They love the Lord more than I ever did at that age. Um, they um, are doing really well. You know, they're active. Thomas is in sports. They're, we don't miss a beat with anything. You know, we've gotten on and we do one day at a time, one step at a time, but we keep moving. And they're doing well, you know. Back to the forgiveness aspect. Um is that still a continued process, or do you feel like it's resolved in your heart and mind? Well, I can say it's definitely it is resolved in my heart and mind. There was um, a lot that had happened. Like I said, it probably took a couple of years of you know anger popping back up in me. But after a couple of years, I started thinking um, that the forgiveness was in me, and I wanted him to know that I had forgiven him. But I wasn't ready to tell him that yet. But I started thinking in my head, I wanted to write him a letter. I was going to write him to tell him that I forgive him. But it took me two more years to finally write that letter. So four years after Brett died, I was like, I really want him to know the Lord. I don't know what he's probably going through a terrible time in prison. You know, I can't imagine what it's like down there. I've heard bad stories. And you know, I just want him to know you know, that he can know the Lord. He can have a relationship. He can be forgiven. So I wrote my letter to him and asked him, you know, I told him I forgive him and, you know, told him about the Lord. And then I had to try and find where he was. And after I did some research, I found devastating news that he had died two years earlier. Um, and actually it was two years after Brett died, he died. I don't know exactly how he died, but that was devastating to me. But at that point, I, my initial thought was, you know, I didn't know if he knew the Lord at that point either, if he had been saved before he died. 
And so I grieved over that. I grieved over his life. The fact that you wrote the letter with the intent of giving it to him probably served as a valuable tool for you as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, it did. It, that helped me knowing you know, that I had true forgiveness. Jerry, we're really out of time, but I, I really want to try to squeeze in two more questions. And the, and the first one is, um, from all your experiences in life, uh, what have you learned from this situation specifically that you've been able to use to help encourage others when they face difficult situations? I think I've learned how to talk to people that have lost a spouse. And I think one thing I took from people that how afraid they were to approach me. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to make me cry or hurt me by bringing anything up. But I needed that. They were to ask how I'm doing. And I would just start crying. <laughs> and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry. And I'm like, no, it's okay. I need people to, I need to hear that people right. care about right. me. And one asked me, and I can talk about Brett and talk about how I'm feeling. There's nothing you have to say. Just being there for someone. So I've hopefully been able to help people and that I've talked to to not be afraid to approach those that have lost a spouse or anyone, you know, a child, uh, you know, just grief. That it's okay to grieve in different ways. We all grieve in different ways. Um, there's no right, there's no wrong way yeah. to grieve. And the, the Lord, we, we both know this, the Lord gives us all platforms to share yeah. the good news with others. Uh, yeah. Your platform is a little more difficult than some platforms that I've ex- been given, but it's still nonetheless an opportunity. And I thank you for not wasting opportunities and it's just being transparent with people. My last question to you, uh, Jerry, is at the core of this podcast, our desire for Cedarville Stories podcast is to share Cedarville Stories for God's glory. How do you hope or believe you are bringing God glory today? Well, I hope people don't look at me, you know. Um, the only way I have strength is the Lord. He's the only one that's given me strength. I keep my eyes focused on Him. That's what I do day to day, keeping on Him, being content with where He has me right now. And He remains faithful to me. He has encouraged me and uh, shown me His faithfulness. It's never ending. It's not me. It's all about Him and how He responds to when things come up and how we allow Him to work in our lives when things come up. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. And as I as I think back to how I opened the podcast, saying this could be one of the most memorable or meaningful podcasts that we've ever aired, now you get an understanding of why I said that, because uh, Jerry Walquist has a, an amazing story, a, a difficult story to share, but she's using it for God's glory, and I want to thank her for doing that. I, I am honored and privileged to call Jerry a friend. Jerry, I'm glad you're on staff here at Cedarville, and I wish you the very best as you lead uh, Rachel and Thomas and... Um, look forward to talking to you down the road. Thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Love it. Thank you for listening to Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by this conversation, like I was, please share this episode with a friend. If you know of an awesome Cedarville story, share it with us. We would love to showcase how God is at work in the Cedarville family. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.